We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, we are beginning here in the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to turn there, Mark chapter 1. And uh, a way that we can begin this is answering the question, why do we need four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? It's because that each one shows a different facet of Christ and thus a different attribute of God. And they are to the entire world, to all of the people, the four corners, and they represent uh, the recipients of the gospel message. Let me just show you. I have my able-bodied worship leader, Mr. Kendall Lucas. Could we have a hand for Kendall Lucas right here? From Dell City, Oklahoma. And um, if you were to listen to each of the gospels, uh, there's a certain tune that all of them give their own kind of tune. For instance, this is the gospel of Matthew. What's that sound like? When you think of a nation that receives the gospel of Matthew, what nation does that sound like? It's Israel. Matthew is written by a Jew to the Jewish nation. The gospel goes to the Jew first. And so uh, Matthew writes, answering the question, who is the king? And if Christ is the king, where is the kingdom? And that's why the term that you see over and over in the gospel of Matthew is, as it is written, that it might be fulfilled, that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The wise men said, where is he who is born? The king of the Jews, Matthew, Luke. Luke is written by a Greek. Luke, and it is written to the Greeks. And it is about not just the king of the Jews, it's about the perfect man. It was the Greek that set forth modern philosophy, looking for aretas, for virtue in perfect manhood of what a man should be. Not just what was true, but what was man's duty. And so Luke is like a meandering, beautiful river, a shining one, a moon river. Thank you. And it meanders slowly all through 24 chapters. You go from John the Baptist, his parents, to Mary, to the census, to Bethlehem, to the end, to the shepherds, the angels, the temple, Simeon, Anna, Jesus at 12 in the temple. It looks at his stories, the great parables. When you read the gospel of Luke, there's red print the words of Jesus and the great stories of Christ. John. It has to be read by James Earl Jones. It's majestic. It starts with, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and tabernacled Among us, we beheld his glory. Seven times you see, I am, that is God in the flesh. You see seven great miracles. You see red ink 
in big, long monologues of Christ showing you who He is. You see His encounters with the woman at the well, with Nicodemus, with the lame man, the blind man, and, and what man is to do before God. And it ends with uh, Thomas falling on his face and saying, my Lord and my God. That's the gospel of John. We're in the gospel of Mark by a young man. Mark is to the Romans. They were pragmatists. Does it work? The Romans didn't invent much, but they, they improved everything. They built empires, civilizations, roads, judicial systems, senates, governments, armies. Mark is about the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word utheos immediately is used 42 times. 16 chapters, 14 begin with the word and, 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 and. <laughs> he's flying, he's trying to convince you. You don't see any great red print. It's all powers. It's in living color as told to Mark by an eyewitness of Simon Peter. That is the gospel of Mark. Mr. Kendall Lucas here, ladies and gentlemen. Don't encourage him. Don't encourage him. <laughs> like the son I never wanted. <laughs> Kendall Lucas. That's why I can't take him anywhere. You know. Well, that's if you went to the cross, you saw over the cross uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. You saw it in three languages because it was the meeting place of all mankind was there at Jerusalem. You remember the three languages? Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Hebrew, Latin, Greek. If you're someone who is religious, that is looking for how to approach a holy God, Matthew, he is your king, your priest. If you're looking for something to change your life and bring it in keeping with truth, that is Mark. He can fix things. I'm sorry, Mark, the gospel of Luke. If you're looking for truth, what is the way and the truth? What is above man's philosophy and science and empiricism? How can I know who God is? That is the gospel of Luke. And together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke is God's world too the cosmos, that God so loved the world. That is John. And so that is how Christ is presented to every man. Well, let me just ask, answer the question, who is Mark? Matthew, he was the tax collector. Luke, he was the sidekick of the apostle Paul. John, of course, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Mark, there's always a little bit of a mystery about Mark. 
Uh, tell you seven things from the New Testament about Mark. Simon Peter calls him my son, Mark. That Paul had Timothy, Peter had Mark. Uh, he was his sidekick. He took him under his wing, apparently. That uh, when you read the gospel of Mark, it's in living color. It's accounts of miracles are more embellished than any author. Apparently, an eyewitness related it with great passion to the gospel writer, Mark, Simon Peter. Uh, also, uh, he is Barnabas's cousin, all right? Colossians chapter four, I send to you Barnabas' cousin, Mark. If he comes to you, welcome him. Uh, Barnabas was a Levite of the priestly family, priestly tribe. And there are things that lead us to believe that John Mark is of Levitical origin. Uh, Barnabas was wealthy. It, there are things that lead us to the fact that Mark was wealthy. M Mark's mother was called Mary, and uh, the early church assembled in her house, that I'll show you. That Mark was a Christian blue blood. The upper room, that was his home. Uh, Acts chapter one says that uh, Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days and then he ascended. And on the 50th day, Pentecost, that's when the birth of the church came. There were 10 days when the church came together and prayed. And Acts one said they came to the upper room. Uh, in Acts 12, when they arrested Peter and they were gonna bring him forth the next day, the early church gathered together to pray and they gathered together in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark in Acts chapter 12. And so his mother was a prominent woman. His uncle was a prominent man. The first Christian nickname is to Joseph of Cyprus, who was called Barnabas. And that was his uncle. So this was, uh, these are the, the Rockefellers, the Fords, the Kennedys, the, the uh, Winthrops. These are Jewish royalty. Um, it is thought that whenever he sends out two disciples to go and find a man with a pitcher, follow him to a, a house with an upper room furnished and prepared there, I will have the Passover with my disciples, that the one with the pitcher could have been John Mark because he was a waiter at the Last Supper, which is why you remember in the Gospel of Mark, when they arrest Christ, there's a young man it comes with a linen robe and only a linen robe and they seize it. He runs out from under it and it drops in the presence of Christ. Well, that is believed to be John Mark, that in the, his house where the last supper was held, that he was a servant, that he was a waiter, that he was an eyewitness. He went to bed, took his pajamas, his linen robe, pulled it over him. Judas brings the uh, the battalion, the temple guard to arrest Christ there at the upper room and he wasn't there. And so he goes away to where he went off to pray, Gethsemane. Someone saw them come, saw them leave, goes there to tell them what's happening and arrives there right when they're arresting him and grabs his, uh, seizes him and his robe drops off. It's believed that was John Mark. And so if you want firsthand uh, stuff, of the betrayal, the last supper of 10 days after the, the ascension, Pentecost, the early church praying together, you go to John Mark, he can tell you. As a matter of fact, 
Ray Stedman, that was a great New Testament scholar, preacher out in California. He felt that, and I happen, I think I want to agree with this, that John Mark was the rich young ruler. That it said that Jesus saw him and loved him, that there was something special about him. He had plans for him. Uh, he's also handpicked, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the job that I have called them to do, to go on mission work. And like all good pastors, missionaries, you always bring along the next generation. So you have a young guy you bring along. Who was the guy that Paul and Barnabas took with them on the first missionary journey? It was John Mark. And he got a stain put on him that he deserted. He went to Cyprus, then they went into Pamphylia, and Mark left them and went back. It is felt that the reason that Mark left isn't because he was scared, but because he was disgusted, because he was out of his Jewish um, comfort zone, and he was having to associate with people like you and me, people with bad teeth, okay, people from Del City, from Durant, okay. And so he got among them and there was just such lethargy and sin that much like Jonah, he said, I don't wanna go to those people. And he went back. And as a result, when the second missionary journey came, Barnabas, his cousin said, come on, young fella, let's go. And Paul said, time out. I'm not going to take with me he that deserted us. I'm going to take Silas. And Barnabas said, oh, no, you're not. Oh, yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. And so they went different ways. So Mark was responsible for the first split of the church. He was there. Uh, in Colossians 4, however, Mark becomes the comeback kid at Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Paul says, uh, I send to you Barnabas, cousin Mark, about whom you have received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. You've heard stuff about this boy. You receive him in the Lord. Uh, John Mark was the comeback kid. Will God let us come back after a, a mess up? Yes, he will. Are you glad? Yeah. And I think he came back because there was a guy that took him under his wing that knew what it was to stumble, named Simon Peter. I think he took Mark and worked with him and he became my son, Mark. A lot of times our failures, that God comforts us in our affliction, that we might be able to comfort those in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. Your pain becomes your pulpit in later days. And so he's the comeback kid. If he comes to you, welcome him. A lot of times we hold grudges. Paul said, no, if he comes back, you receive him in the Lord with all joy. And in 2 Timothy 4, the very last book and the very last chapter, writing from prison, the apostle Paul says to Timothy, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service, the comeback kid. And so that's John Mark. Now let's go here to chapter one and let's 
take a look at this gospel, you'll notice that it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, he states it right there. This is good news from God about his son, who is the son as it is written. And he goes right to John the Baptist. Matthew and Luke give us six chapters prior to the public ministry of Christ in his private life. Mark skips right over them. He goes straight to the private or the public ministry of Christ. He cuts to the chase. Let's get down to the good news of what he did. And so in verse two, he begins with this quotation. Verse two is from the gospel, I'm sorry, from the prophet Malachi. I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then he goes to Isaiah chapter 40 and he coalesces these two verses, Malachi and Isaiah together. What is the first prophet in the canon of prophets? It's Isaiah. What is the last prophet in the prophets? Malachi. Did you say Malachi? No, it's because you haven't read it. It's that great Italian prophet, Malachi. All right. And so you have Isaiah and Malachi, and it's like uh, Mark brings them together and simply gives it the name Isaiah because he was the greater but he takes the two and he brings them together. Now, verse two why, and three, why does he start with John the Baptist? Answer, he must. You can't have Christ without John the Baptist. You can't have the Messiah without the forerunner. You remember in the gospel of John, Jesus said, uh, the shepherd comes to his sheep and to him, the doorkeeper opens. Those who are not the shepherds will go up by another way to get into the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. Question, who is the doorkeeper? It's the Old Testament prophecies. Who is the one that is the last Old Testament prophet that stands in between Malachi and the giving of the gospel he is the last Old Testament prophet and he's the one that points to Jesus and doesn't say he's coming. He says, behold, he's here. Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus called him the greatest born among women. This is John the Baptist. And so if you don't have uh, the doorkeeper, you can't have Christ. You can't volunteer to be the Messiah. God has to raise you up and the Old Testament must point to you and say, you're the one that it might fade away and bring in the new. And so let me show you what he quotes. Go to your left to the book of Malachi, right after Matthew. And in Malachi chapter three, that God says in verse one, behold, I'm going to send my messenger. Matter of fact, the word messenger in Hebrew is pronounced Malachi. And so this is the last Old Testament prophet is saying he's coming. I'm gonna send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Whenever a king came to your city, there would be a forerunner the secret service. And he was to go and raise up the low places 
and bring down the high places so that you have got this red carpet to get ready for the king. And so before the king comes, he said, I'm going to send my Malachi, my messenger to get your hearts ready. And the Lord, after he comes, the Lord whom you seek, because Israel was always looking for the coming of this person, of the prophet that would precede the Messiah. As a matter of fact, whenever the Jew finishes Passover every year, they will say, next year in Jerusalem, maybe Messiah will come. And then you will send out the youngest child to go outside the door and to look around to see if Messiah is coming. And so the the messenger, uh, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the gospel of John, the first place Christ goes to upon his beginning of his ministry is the temple where he clears it. And at the end of his ministry, he has to do it again. He comes to the temple and he will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. That is who Christ is. He's the one that brings the new covenant that we will say bye-bye to the infantile nature of law and hello to the adulthood, the bar mitzvah of sonship and of the rebirth that we go from children to sons. That's going to come not by a new set of rules, but by a person who is going to say, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. And so the one in whom you delight Behold, he is coming. And so the last word of the Old Testament is the next voice you hear will be the forerunner of the king. And if you'll look at chapter four and verse four, five, and six, these are your last verses of the Old Testament. K-H-V-N signs off. I just made that up, okay. K-Heaven is signing off. And God is saying, you're not going to hear any more prophets. How big a gap is there between Malachi and Matthew? 400 years. Can a lot happen in 400 years? It's been about that long since we've been a country. And so there's going to be, we're going to go from Babylonian rule to Persian rule to Greek rule to Roman rule. And then when you're at your lowest place, he's going to come. Does God have to get us to our lowest place? He has to bring down the high place to raise up the low place. And so in verse four of chapter four, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Uh, The statutes and ordinances which I commanded him at Sinai or Horeb for all Israel. You keep on keeping my law. And in verse five, the next thing you see will be Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The Jew would understand that as being the final judgment. And in verse six, before that final judgment, Elijah the prophet is going to restore the hearts of the fathers to their, the hearts of the fathers to their children. The mark of a godly Jewish man is Deuteronomy six. This law of the Lord will be on your heart and you will teach it diligently to your children. It's the mark of a godly man in our day. So I'm gonna call this, this Elijah before the coming of the king is gonna call your heart back to true biblical obedience. It's interesting that he's gonna begin with fathers. Is there still a need for godly fathers in our day to raise up? 
And uh, in verse six, and he will restore the hearts of the children to their fathers. We're gonna have godly teenagers. That's, that's the kingdom right there. We're gonna restore the new generation to righteousness as led by the old generation so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, those two little hills right there are the two aspects of the Messiah, that he will restore and bring about new birth in Israel, and then he will have a final judgment of all sin. Now, when you look at those two hills from a distance of the Old Testament, they almost look like two Messiahs that are coming, one that will give his life and die and bring new life to the nation, and one that will judge the wicked and cast them into everlasting fire. So which will Messiah be? Will he be the loving uh, savior or will he be the conquering judge? Which will he be? He will be both. That those two mountaintops look like they're right next to each other, but they're not. They're at a distance. And when you're standing at a distance, it looks like two of them side by side. But as you get the perspective of getting up on top of it, there's a valley in between that he's gonna come and die. And then there's gonna be a period of time that's called the mystery of the church where he's gonna save out of people. And then he will return in the second coming to bring about judgment. Malachi puts them together. That's why in the Old Testament, there was always a bit of confusion as to who the Messiah would be. Those that have the greatest insight are those that are in the valley, the church, that we have an insight that nobody else has about what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake. And so we go here to the gospel of Mark once again, and we begin with the forerunner. Here he comes. Why is he called Elijah in the book of Malachi? Who was Elijah? Elijah is the head of the prophetic order of the Old Testament. Whenever Christ is uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration and two beings from heaven appear in glory and speak to him of the death he is about to accomplish, who are those two beings that place their ordination on him. One is Moses, who represents the law. Who is the other one? Elijah, that represents the law and the prophets. Christ is always prophesied by the law and the prophets. And so before Messiah comes, Malachi says, Elijah is coming. That the Old Testament is the doorkeeper Elijah is the one who opens it and says, this is him. Nobody else gets to be the redeemer and the savior. Not Gautama, not Muhammad, not Sung Mung Moon, not anybody else. You only get to be the redeemer if the Old Testament forerunner appears and points to you and says, you are the redeemer. The law, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill not one jot until it will pass away until all is fulfilled. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he spoke to them the things concerning him and all of the scriptures. 
All scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It is to bring you to the knowledge of Christ. And so the Old Testament points to the coming of the new. Uh, Before a president is sworn in, someone must be present. Who is that person that must be present? He puts his hand on the Bible. He swears to defend, support, and protect the Constitution. Who is it that swears him in, at least usually? It's the Supreme Court judge, the one that holds him accountable to the Constitution. If you're going to be the Messiah, Elijah must swear you in. The prophetic order were those that preached the law of God, that called you back to the law of God, that predicted what was going to happen if you departed from the law of God and gave you hope in the coming of Messiah to pay for what you had done to the law of God. And so rightly does Malachi say, the next voice you hear will be Elijah. And here comes a fellow. He wears camel's hair. He looks like Messiah. He eats locust and wild honey. He lives like Messiah, not Messiah, like Elijah. He is in the desert. Uh, He conducts himself like Elijah and he preaches like Elijah. And as a matter of fact, if you'll remember in the gospel of Luke, whenever uh, the ministry of Christ begins, how does it begin? With a fellow named Zacharias, married to a woman named Elizabeth, and he is a priest in the temple. And here is Gabriel appears to him and says, you and your wife are about to have a child. You're gonna name him John, and he is gonna be the forerunner, and he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. It's not gonna be the literal Elijah, but everybody's going to recognize this is him. He looks like and sounds like Elijah. He's calling us to repentance. He's predicting judgment if we don't. And he's giving us the assurance that who follows him is the Messiah. Okay. Um, whenever you look at, the, at uh, Mary is given the annunciation that she will conceive a child and the holy thing will be the son of God. And as a sign, your cousin Elizabeth is in now her fifth month. She's about to have a baby and that baby will be the forerunner. And 30 days later, Mary runs to Elizabeth and comes in the door and gives a greeting. The Lord be with you. And something happens in Elizabeth. Remember what it was? The baby leaped for joy. The last Old Testament prophet at six months leaped in her womb for joy that the Messiah had come. And it was because and, uh, she looked at Mary and said, what has the mother of my Lord to say to me? Incidentally, a little sermon in the sermon. At that time, how old was Jesus? 30 days in the womb. Would he have been in trouble in America? It would have been. She said, the mother of my Lord, that was a person in there. And so it's interesting. Zacharias and Elizabeth, that's where the gospel begins with the coming of John. A little 
interesting note. You know what Elizabeth means? Uh, or Zacharias means God remembers. Elizabeth means my covenant. God remembers his covenant. And so here comes John the Baptist. John the Baptist leaps in the presence of Christ. And as the gospel ministry begins, you don't begin with Jesus. John the Baptist comes saying that he's here. Have I beat this horse sufficiently dead? That's why this is so important. To him, the doorkeeper opens. Who testifies that Christ is the Messiah? God's holy word. You don't try to figure it out by studying nature, going inside of yourself or looking at, at education, comparative religion. Your reason's not gonna take you there. God has to tell you who God is. And so the Old Testament says, this is him. This is him. Well, let me show you something else. Keep your finger there and look over at Isaiah in chapter 40. Isaiah is like a little miniature Bible. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, after 39 chapters of judgment, we're about to have uh, 27 chapters of grace. The Bible has 39 chapters of the old, 27 books of the new, 66 in all. Isaiah has 39 chapters of judgment, 27 chapters of grace, 66. It's a miniature Bible. As a matter of fact, the name Isaiah means God's salvation. You know what is a takeoff of the name Isaiah? Hosea, Yeshua, Jesus. And so in chapter 40, Israel is going into captivity, but in chapter 40, verse one, comfort, comfort my people, speak kindly to Jerusalem, call out to her, warfare is ended, iniquity's been removed, she's received from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. And in verse three, the king is coming. Y'all are gonna go into captivity, but God says, I'm gonna come get you out. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Verse six, a voice says, call out. Who is this voice? John Mark takes verse three and four and attaches it to Malachi 3.1. He says, this is the final deliverance of Israel. Isaiah is speaking specifically to the nation that's gonna go into captivity into Babylon and God is going to bring them out. You ever read the book of Ezra? You got a guy named Zerubbabel and a high priest named Joshua, son of Shaltiel. And they take 50,000 Jews, bring them out of Babylon and bring them back to Israel. And so that is what specifically this text is prophesying. It's called a greater exodus. God's gonna bring you home. Mark, however, doesn't take these verses and see them merely as Israel returning 600 years earlier, which they did. No, my bad. Whatever 70 subtracted from 586 is, that's when Israel returned. And so in 500 years later, Mark takes that verse and he says it's about to have its ultimate fulfillment that the ultimate fulfillment of Israel coming home will not be just the Exodus or not even the greater Exodus 
in Isaiah 40 when Israel's going to come home. But it's going to be under Messiah. He's the one that's going to, that the king is going to literally come. Behold your king, and he is going to bring you home. That is why the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, because Jesus means God's salvation. You shall call his name Jesus, because he will Jesus his people. He will save his people. You will call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Not just Egypt, not just Babylon. I'm going to save you from you. Is that a good message in our day? Your problem is not your economy, not your military. Your problem is not your government, simply. Your problem is you and God are alien. And so go back here to the gospel of Mark. And so in verse two and three, we combine Isaiah and Malachi. The king is now literally coming. God has come among his creation. And the forerunner points to him, the Supreme Court judge, and says, the king has come. Well, in verse four, John the Baptist, well, if you look at verse six, he looks like Elijah, clothed with camel hair, leather belt. He lives like Elijah, his diet with locust and wild honey. This is him. But in verse four, he sounds like Elijah. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. Incidentally, the reason he appears in the wilderness, John the Baptist is of the priestly order. His daddy is a priest. He could have been seminary educated and grown up there in Jerusalem, but he doesn't. He separates from the nation and goes in the wilderness. You know why? Because Jerusalem is unclean. And their attempts to bring God down to their level and to have tradition to reinterpret divine law and to make God sinner friendly. Y'all with me? That's what they did. Whenever you say you're gonna go to heaven by your good works, you're going to have to make the law of God sinner friendly. And that's what they had done. And John the Baptist says, you're dirty and I'm not coming in. And so if you're gonna be saved, you're gonna to have to go from the place of religion, of human effort to earn God's favor that Israel had become. And you're going to have to leave it and go out in the wilderness. You're gonna to have to do like Abraham and depart to a place that you know not of. And so he appeared in the wilderness preaching, not just the law of God, but preaching a baptism of repentance. John is a reformer. He's reforming. He's going back. Countries are either reforming back to God or they are progressive. They're going on and leaving God behind. Instead of serving with their ancient truths, which is called a conservative, I didn't just make that up. Conservative means that you're not progressive. You're going back to your constitutional fundamental ideas. You're not freed from these ideas called a liberated one or a liberal. You're thinking I'm making this up, but I'm not. 
You're not a liberal and you're not a progressive. You're a reformer and you are a, a foundationalist, a fundamentalist. You go back to the revealed truths. And that's what John the Baptist is doing. Return to God. And he preaches repentance. Repentance is when you recognize your sin in the light of God's holiness and you sorrow and you fear and you don't try to earn your way out. You cast yourself upon him for his mercies. That is called repentance. You don't try to do anything to earn your way out. You cast yourself in sorrow upon the mercy of God. And Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, Israel did this 1,500 times until Christ came. Every year in the fall of the year. What you would do is you would go to your home and you would not come out of your home. You would not work and you did not eat. You were saying that physical life is lost to me if I don't get right with God. And the whole nation would have a fast on the day, Yom, of covering, kafar, the day of Kippur, Yom Kippur, or as we say in Texas, Yom Kippur, okay. And so on the day of atonement, you went to your home and one guy was working that day and one guy only, it's the high priest. And he offers up a bull for his own sin. And then he offers up a goat for the nation. He lays his hands on that goat and pronounces the sin of the nation, the 10 commandments they had broken. And then he takes a veil and as the representative of the nation, he lays the veil upon that goat and they kill that goat and he takes his blood and he goes in before the very presence of God. They separate the veil at the Holy of Holies that no one can enter, but once a year. And you came with shed blood. You don't enter by yourself. They would tie a rope around your ankle in case you fell over dead in God's presence because it was hard to get a detail to go in and drag you out. And so they tied a rope around your leg and you would go in. And there in this acacia wood chest, there was the 10 commandments, the law of God. And above it was the bright, brilliant presence of, of God, the Shekinah. We get the word skin from that. It was the presence of God. And between God and his violated law, there was what was called the Helasterion, the mercy seat of gold. And it covered every inch of that Ark of the Covenant. There was no sin that you could do that the mercy of God could not cover. Amen. And so God looked down on your violated law that you had done, but on the mercy seat that was between God and judgment, he would take the blood of the innocent victim and sprinkle it seven times because it's the number of completeness. Man is created on the sixth day. The Lord our God is one. Six plus one is seven. God has come together with man. And so you would sprinkle it seven times and then you would back out. And you did that every year. The sacrifice wasn't sufficient to save, but it was illustrative that someone must die for what you've done. And you can't go before God. A designated man, the priest, 
He will go before God. And he will go with a breastpiece that has 12 stones, the 12 tribes, you're close to his heart, and two onyx stones on his shoulders with the six tribes on each one, like a shepherd carrying a little lamb. And he would come before God. And there he would lay down his life for his children. And you did that every single year until a certain man would die, stretched out like the helisterion, covering all of your sin. Amen? Covering all of your sin. And when he died, he would say, it's finished. No more sacrifice. The old has now disappeared in the light of the new. And the veil that separated God from men was torn, not from the bottom to the top, that is religion, but from the top to the bottom. And God said, I accept this sacrifice. And now we proclaim this message called the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so John is calling you to repentance. And it's in verse four, for the forgiveness of sin uh, that forgiveness is not going to be earned. It's going to be conferred. No one is entitled to go to heaven. Amen. No one on their own will receive this designation as forgiven. Someone must die because Israel had departed from their fundamental faith, Isaiah is calling them back. The fellow that follows him will be, John is a meteor lighting up the sky. The one that comes out of, after him is the sun rising with healing in its wings. He is going to be so committed to the fundamental law of God that when it comes down to him having to die for it, he will die for it. That is called fundamentalism. Uh, it's much the same as when the person comes that proclaims him, the apostle Paul. John was rejected. Jesus was rejected. The apostle Paul, he was rejected. Peter was rejected. And so this message will get you killed that God does not accept your religion. God only accepts the sacrifice that he has foretold and he has enacted. Any other and he will not receive it. This is why, you ever heard of the name Martin Luther? He came in the Middle Ages to a Christianity that had departed from the word of God as Israel had in its day and was going to earn their way back in by tradition, making God sinner friendly. And Martin Luther was truly, I mean, he was a true uh, Catholic in a sense. He, he was deathly afraid of purgatory and of burning. And he was always trying to work his way out of that guilt. They used to say that when he would come to confession, the priest would run because you knew he was gonna be in there for three hours. Uh, and finally, he got so, um, he, he was so terrified of God. He said once, love God, I hated him. And he would try to 
perform communion. He became a priest and he was so terrified that he couldn't hold the cup and the bread. He would shake. And so the, he was slowly losing his mind. And so you do what a guy, what a guy, what he does when he loses his mind. You make him a college professor. And so they sent Luther to Wittenberg, Germany, to a new college. Said, here, get some sophomores and maybe you can get normal again. And he had to teach the letters of Paul. What's the first letter of Paul? Romans. What's the first chapter? Chapter one. He got to verse 16 and he could go no further. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The Jew first, then to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Luther said the righteousness of God terrified him. He could never measure up to it. But he saw that verb, the righteousness of God in the gospel is revealed. To Luther, he would have said the righteousness of God must be earned and be punished for. And he couldn't do it. And here he sees that Christ revealed God's righteousness. And now he understood it. Because the rest of the verse says, the righteous shall live by faith. That righteousness is not something that you are entitled to by your efforts. It is something you receive as a gift that is bestowed upon you by the good news. And he saw, I can be made righteous. I don't have to become righteous. And he said that it was like the, the gates of heaven were opened. And he began now in the chapel at Wittenberg to preach what had not been heard for over a thousand years, is that the salvation of God was provided in the death of his son, who gave his life that we could have imputed to us the righteousness of God. And guess what? What happened to him was the same as verse five, that all the country of Judea was going out to him. All the people of Jerusalem. All of a sudden, they had so many people show up to Luther's chapel that they couldn't fit them in because everybody wants to see, hear a message that I can have the assurance that when I die, I will be with the Lord. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And so everybody responded to this preaching. And in verse four, it's for forgiveness. That salvation is not an entitlement. Salvation is a gift. And why do we have in verse four, a baptism? The only person baptized in your Bible in Israel and the Old Testament, only one person gets baptized. You know who it is? It's not a Jew. It's a Gentile. It's a Syrian general named Naaman, and he contracted a disease. Anybody remember? Leprosy. He's a dead man. And he sends to the king of Israel and says, I would like to be healed. I hear you got a prophet there that can heal you named Elisha. And he came with a bunch of money asking for a healing. And Elisha sent a message out to him and said, go to the Jordan River and wash seven times you're going to have to acknowledge the God of the Jordan. The Jordan is a river of what nation? Israel. You have to acknowledge Israel's God. You can't go to just a lowercase G-O-D. You've got to go to capital G Jehovah to be saved. And he didn't like it. 
He said, I've got cleaner rivers up in Syria, the Urbana and the Farpar. And he walked away mad. You ever witness to somebody and say salvation is a free gift? You just got to dip in the grace of God and be saved. And they say, like a prostitute would? Yeah. Like a, a, some pervert would? Yes. You get saved the same way. That bugs me. I'm done with you. And one of his buddies came to him, to Naaman, and said, look, if he had asked you to do something impossible, you'd have done it. All he asked you to do was trust him. Wash and be clean. And he said, all right. And he went and had to take off his clothes, which is embarrassing when you're a leper. And you got to take off all of your robes before everybody and they see you for who you are. Is that what salvation is? We're going to get down to the skinny as to who you are. And he dipped in that Jordan. And after six times, nothing had changed. Because if you jump in once and get saved, now it's a work. Six times, it's the foolishness of God. And you've got to trust him all the way. You've got to trust him completely. And on the seventh time, he came up and his flesh was like baby's flesh. In other words, he had been born again. Isn't that something? And so that's what this means. And John the Baptist says, we're going to baptize you. Whoa. Like Naaman, the leprous Syrian, like Naaman, you're going to have to lay aside your fig leaves, Adam, and accept the covering from God. You're going to have to admit that you're no better than the worst man. You dig? And yet you're going to have to say in your joy, that you can be cleansed freely of whatever you've done. All you've got to do is trust the word of God. And so when it says here, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness, that we have returned to the Bible. You with me? That's why if you read your Bible in a sweep and saw Israel depart from the law of God, which they did, you open up now to Mark 1, and it is a fresh breeze. It's Luther at Wittenberg. We're back to the Bible. Well, keep watching. In verse 7, even though that he is going to grant forgiveness, something's interesting here. In verse 7, he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming. Let me stop you just a second. Can God give salvation without Jesus? It's okay. No. If you said yes, we have to stone you. Okay. Now, Jesus didn't die just for the will of God. He died for the nature of God. There is no free lunch and there is no free salvation. Salvation is free, asterisk. Free for who? Free for you. Is it free for Christ? No, somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to cry out in the dark and say it's finished. Somebody has got to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Somebody has to be forsaken by God for no good reason of their own. And only one can do that. It's when God becomes one of us. And so, rightly does John say, I'm offering you free grace to be saved. I'm calling you back to the Old Testament. We're going home. And in verse seven, because one is coming and he is mightier than I, I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. A Jewish servant did not have to undo your sandals because he is now called to touch something that may have been unclean. There may be some manure on your sandals and that would make him unclean. No, no master can call a servant to violate the law of God. And so you did not have to undo your, your sandals. The greatest of all biblical men, the guy who looks upon the Savior, says, I'm not worthy to do the lowest of jobs because we're talking about God. And you're asking me to touch him. And I can't. I can't touch this being. We'll look at it next week. Do you remember? He said, Jesus said, baptize me. And John said, I can't. I'm not worthy to baptize you. Christ said, fulfill, let's, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. I have done all that I should have done all of my life, even though I didn't need to be circumcised. I didn't need to keep the Passover, but I did it because that's what a righteous Jew would do. And so this is where a righteous Jew will be down at the river getting baptized. Let's do all that we're supposed to do, John. He said, okay. And so, uh, verse seven, one is coming that is mightier and he will baptize you and verse eight with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I'm gonna save us a little time, but this, do you have a Bible that has cross references by that verse? It should have Ezekiel, Jeremiah, should have Joel. It should have Isaiah. Listen to this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. This is from Ezekiel 36. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you and remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. I'm gonna make you obey and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Does that sound familiar? I'm going to wash you with clean water and I'm going to give you my spirit. You must be born again, born of the water and of the spirit. Matthew or uh, Ezekiel 36. So when John says this, he's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. That is calling into mind the ministry of the Messiah of bringing the new birth. So John says, one that follows me is going to be Christ. Isn't that a marvelous text? You know, there's a fellow that wrote years ago in the late 1800s, his name was Alfred Edersheim. And he wrote a book, pretty good book. And it's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. It's a classic. It's not, it's easy reading, but it's gonna stretch you. And he takes every single event in Jesus' life and he gives it from the Jewish understanding of why he did what he did. 
And he said something. I've never found anything this good. And he's writing this in 1893, before Zionism, before anybody had set foot back in Israel that would culminate in 1948. And Udersheim, a Christian Jew, says this. He said, whether or not he be the lion of the tribe of Judah, to him assuredly has been the gathering of the nations and the islands have waited for his law. In other words, is he the Messiah, the lion of Judah? The whole world thinks he is. He said, passing the narrow bonds or bounds of obscure Judea and breaking down the walls of national prejudice and isolation, Jesus has made known the sublimer teaching of the Old Testament, the common possession of the world. He has founded a great brotherhood of which the God of Israel is the father. He also alone has exhibited a life in which absolutely no fault could be found and has fostered a teaching to which absolutely no exception can be taken. What he said is perfect. Admittedly, he was the one perfect man, the ideal of humanity. His doctrine is the one absolute teaching. The world has known none other, none equal than this man. And the world has owned it, if not by the testimony of words, yet by the evidence of facts. Springing from such a people, born living and dying in circumstances and using means the most unlikely of such results, the man of Nazareth has by universal consent been the mightiest factor in our world's history. Alike politically, socially, intellectually, and morally, there is none like him. If he be not the Messiah, Jesus has at least thus far done the Messiah's work. If he be not the Messiah, there has at least been none other before or after him. And if he be not the Messiah, the world has not and never can have a Messiah. That's a Jew in 1893. He's come. You with me? He's come. In the immortal words of Glenda, the witch of the West. I'm not sure if it was the West or East or one of the witches. The one that had a voice like this. <laughs> Glenda. Dorothy wanted to go home. She said, you can go home anytime you want. You've just got to say, you little girl that ran away from home because Annie M and Uncle Henry, was that his name? I forget, or Uncle Cletus or Theodos or somebody like that. You ran away from home because you didn't like the rules. And you can go home, but you gotta say three times. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. How do you get saved? You gotta say it. There's no place like home. No place like home. You gotta go back to God. You got a communion cup? Now don't email me about quoting witches at communion. All right. This, uh, don't get the gazette on me. All right. In the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after breaking it said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in memory of me to him. But it was not enough that Jesus just came, the perfect, unleavened, unspotted lamb. He had to be willing to die. Whenever he said, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Is it possible for God to save without the death of Christ? If it be possible, take this cup from me. He was expressing his heart. Yet not my will, but thine be done. If it be possible, take this cup from me. The father said, no. Not just someone has to die. You have to die. For me to get them, there can't be you. Somebody's got to die. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. Without God's wrath being satisfied, his mercy can't be extended. Without the blood of that goat covering the law that's been violated, God cannot look down upon it and pronounce you kafar, covered. As a matter of fact, that word kippur is mentioned for the first time in Genesis 6 whenever Noah makes an ark and covers it with pitch so it'll float. And so this is the blood of the new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. For as oft as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord. Whoa, hear what I just said? The death of God. The covenant keeper became the covenant breaker that covenant breakers might be seen as covenant keepers. Do this in memory of me. Me and who else? Just me, just Jesus to Christ. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sunday morning as we begin this journey through this Christian blue blood taught by Paul, taught by Peter, taught by Barnabas, taught by his mama. This marvelous young man, this one that went to Alexandria, Egypt, and disembarked to begin Christianity in North Africa. This one that Augustine would follow 300 years later in steps. We thank you and pray, Lord, that uh, though he is dead, he might still speak in the beauty of the gospel. Lord, we circle our wagons like orphans around a flame to the person of Christ in whose name we pray, amen.